ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Furley here back in the Country Hour chair for today and tomorrow. Coming up on the show, you'll hear about modelling that predicts one third of farmland in Australia could be covered in wind and solar by 2050. And lab-grown meat substitute company Val says it's not planning on targeting traditional livestock markets after it cleared the first hurdle to sell its lab-grown quail substitute in Australia. We'll also head to the Lakes Entrance Fishermen's Co-op where the first catch of prawns for the season has arrived months early. Get in touch on the text line 0467 842 722. Before we get to those stories, though, let's head to Rural News with Jane McNaughton. Good afternoon, Angus. The sugarcane industry says it's never used Benamol, a banned fungicide that's been detected in oysters and water in the Richmond River in the north of New South Wales. The industry also says it was blindsided by Southern Cross University research findings of high levels of herbicides, atrazine and diuron, at the site at Empire Vale adjacent to the caneland, which was one of six sites tested for pesticides in the lower estuary in 2020. New South Wales Cane Growers Association Chairman Ross Farlow says if the industry had have been alerted to the one-off spike at the time, an investigation could have determined whether cane farmers were in fact the source of the pesticide runoff. Well, it's one thing to point the finger, but it's another thing to prove it. And um, although we are users of those chemicals, not the one that you mentioned first, the Benamil, that's, uh, to my knowledge, never been used. It's not registered for sugarcane and it's never been used as a fungicide in the sugar industry in the past. We have had no use for that fungicide. We had another fungicide that was, was doing our job. So... I don't know where that Benamil would have come from. They'll have to investigate that further, but it's not a sugar industry issue, that one. One of the main concerns we've got is that why now? Why release the report now, some almost four years down the track, after a one-off spike in one drain at Empire Vale in 2020? Why now, when uh, the sister outlet, some 500 metres away, under the same trials uh, data collecting process, found that those paddocks and that drain outlet was well within the guidelines. All of our farmers use spray diaries. It's against the law not to. All of our farmers have critical accreditation using APVMA-approved chemicals. We could have launched an investigation at the time. Did you know that Australia is no longer producing helium? The only helium plant in Australia has been shut down because its gas supply in Darwin ran out. This means that Australia is now having to import helium for a range of uses, such as welding equipment, scuba diving gas, MRI machines and, of course, party balloons. But there are some companies on the hunt for this extremely rare gas, such as Central Petroleum. Its managing director, Leon Davini, 
says they've found helium in the middle of Australia and are looking at how to bring it online. Look, there's certainly an opportunity in the marketplace to find new supply of helium in Australia. Uh, one of the things we've done is look at our uh, production uh, in the Amadeus Basin, and we do have helium in that existing production. So uh, we are investigating a helium recovery unit, which essentially goes on to existing fields and strips out the helium through a membrane technology. Uh, we can then compress that gas or liquefy it and sell it into the domestic market. So certainly in the near term at, uh, at Marini is our target uh, field at this point to, to investigate that, that opportunity. Uh, uh, in addition to that, though, we are looking at exploration. Uh, we've got um, some large subsalt uh, prospects that are uh, very good candidates for helium. Uh, these are much, uh, much bigger opportunities to produce, and uh, if we're successful, we'll be actually uh, not just supplying the Australian market, but also exporting helium if, uh, if we are successful. As more of the rich volcanic soil surrounding Queensland's majestic Glasshouse Mountains gets lost forever to housing development, a stroke of luck and a lot of hard work is helping one farm not just survive, but thrive. Karen Martin from Ninala Farms says the story started several decades ago when the first pink blush custard apple materialised on one branch of a single tree in an orchard. Probably about 25 plus years ago, my father-in-law who grew custard apples and lychees and avocados on the property had noticed that there was this one tree on the custard apple orchard that used to fruit at a different time of the year and he didn't do anything about it for a few years, although he did mention it to my husband. And what used to happen was that the fruit would start ripening in about September, October and the fruit would just fall to the ground. So he didn't do anything with it, didn't realise that it was a, another variety. And what had happened was Rob had mentioned to his dad and said, you need to do something with that. You need to graft it and to see what comes of it. So we left it for a few years and they eventually decided to graft some fruit. And the upside of the story is that we now have 2,000 trees on our property that are fruit-bearing trees. And the pink slush variety is harvested from September to December. In fact, we are currently harvesting now. Roll on, put the brake on your wheelchair and start the engine and drive off to anywhere that you've got to go. That's the simple design of a new vehicle created by South Australian rural landowner Tom Carr who was looking for a better way, an easier way to get around his property, especially on the dirt tracks. He's been testing out a petrol engine version of what he calls the magic carpet. I can get on and off this in five seconds really and the car is two minutes and it's strenuous and I can access the property a lot better than I used to. It's a $200 Chonda six horsepower motor with an eBay carburetor, an eBay torque converter for a go-kart. On and off it's had a few, it's not really serious teething issues, but uh, it's like anything, you kind of refine it as you go and slowly you get to something that's, that's workable. I run the dog up and down the track every day and I pretty much go around the flatter parts of the property. Our property is particularly steep, so I can do the flatter parts in this. It's probably more limited by my courage on the steeper areas than the device itself, but it's been super useful. I can access uh, sheds that I couldn't access. Yeah, it's great. It's very useful. Allows you to take your wheelchair with you. Allows you to do a lot more than you otherwise would. And that's today's Rural News, Angus. Thanks, Jane. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News. On the text line, a couple of rainfall figures. Uh, Clyde from Bright says 15 mils near Bright all came in the final 20 minutes of a seven-day rain event. I'd be interested to hear, Clyde, what your total for that seven-day event is now. 
Uh, Robert Chilton, 3.5 mils, lots of noise, but the dams are full, the tanks are full, and we've still got a green pick. What a great position to be in there, Rob. 0467-842-722 is how you can get in touch on the text line. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. The Institute of Public Affairs says up to one-third of all farmland in Australia would be covered in wind and solar farms by 2050 if all coal, gas and oil production was replaced by wind and solar. Daniel Wilde is Deputy Executive Director of the Institute. He says the Conservative think tank analysed the impact of the push toward wind and solar to understand what it could mean for farmers. Well, we undertook this research to understand some of the practical consequences of the renewable energy uh, programs, in particular as it relates to the net zero emissions commitment by the federal and state governments. And our main area of concern is how this is impacting farming uh, communities and regional communities across uh, Victoria and also other parts of um, Australia. And what our research established is that up to one third of our farmland in our nation Uh, could be taken up by renewable energy infrastructure such as wind turbines and solar panels uh, and that this is causing you know pretty significant dislocation in many of these regional communities. So that figure sounds extraordinarily high can you talk me through how you arrived at it? Sure we looked at the the data provided by the government and the International Energy Agency uh, as it relates to the growing demand for our um, energy consumption in Australia Uh, and also the commitment of the government to not only have a net zero economy in Australia, but for our nation to become what they call a renewable energy superpower, which basically means exporting renewable energy uh, overseas while they want to wind back on our fossil fuel uh, exports. And if you look at the land, I mean, these are very land-intensive forms of energy generation. If you contrast that to nuclear power or your coal-fired power stations, you know, in comparison, they require much, much more land to generate a given amount of, of energy. So you are looking at significant portions of our farmland that would need to be taken up by this energy infrastructure in order to meet these renewable targets. And look, I think the real issue here is is not just the wind and solar, um, but, you know, we've been talking to a lot of locals about the transmission lines. And as you and your listeners know, that really is a sticking point for for a lot of farmers and landowners who are concerned about the transmission lines through their property. And just talk me through that, because I understand you've been in the, the Victorian Mallee and uh, South Australian Riverland. Uh, what what feedback are you getting when you are uh, meeting with these people? Yeah, so we've been, as you say, through the Mallee and the Riverland and, and met with a lot of number of farmers just outside of Bort earlier this week. And look, the concern is really that there's a lack of proper consultation that's going on uh, and that many of the, the city-based uh, bureaucrats and those from the energy, the Australian energy market operator um, don't really understand the practicalities of what it is that they're expecting farmers and landowners to do. Um, of the farmers that we met, there was pretty much unanimous opposition to the way that this is currently being handled. Um, probably the most concerning aspect of this is how it's pitting farmer against farmer and neighbour against neighbour. Yeah, because what you have is these, you know, very wealthy uh, renewable companies coming in and offering what are sometimes financially vulnerable farmers a lot of money 
uh, to basically sign up to these projects, and that really divides the community. So there was, uh, I think, a lot of concern about this, but also um, I, I think an understanding that the community needs to stick together in order to try and, and fight against a lot of this. I wanted to go to, to, to your previous point there because, I mean, on an individual basis, similar to what we see in cases with, with water buybacks, that, that it might be lucrative for some farmers if they can cash in and, and sell to, whether it is a solar farm or, or a wind farm. Yeah, it certainly could be in certain circumstances, uh, but that would come at immense cost to the farming communities that rely on the farmers who are there and also at an immense cost to our nation. I mean, even if you just look at the food security issue, if you're losing a third of farmland to renewable energy infrastructure, that's essentially a third reduction to the supply of food and fibre onto the market. On the point about food security, the, the figure that's thrown around is an extra $2 billion people on the planet roughly by by 2050. I mean, what what responsibility does Australia have to be producing as much food as it possibly can to, to feed that population? Yeah, you make you make a great point. And I think we have a, a big responsibility to do that. One of the things that we should always be proud of as a nation is not only do we feed ourselves, but we feed ourselves three times over and we export that around the world. Um, and as you say, there's only the population is only going up. Um, and as you and your listeners would know, our farmers are among the most productive in the world. Do you think we would ever really see one-third of, of farmland converted to, to wind and solar, or is this uh, just a, a desktop exercise? No, I think we will. Um, and you can look at the government's own plans. Um, they've got maps uh, that you can see. Uh, all you have to do is Google it and, you, and you'll find the maps they have of the renewable energy zones that are being slated across across the country. I mean, this is a serious amount of land that is going to need to be quarantined in order to meet these um, targets. There's just no way around it. They are very land-intensive forms of energy generation. Um, that's why we should continue to look at our baseload power supplies of nuclear, which we should, at a minimum, have a debate over, and continuing our existing coal fleet because, you know, the if you if you compare the amount of land you need for coal to you know for example to generate a given amount of energy to wind and solar i mean it's just um you know the amount of land is just dramatically different so there's no way around it if you want to go down the path of net zero you you must have significant shares of land that are used for the for the infrastructure and you, you can't just put this stuff out in the desert because it needs to be near population centers for the purposes of transmission which means you are going to have a big impact on farmland just finally, there will be people listening to this who will say that the IPA is uh, anti-renewables, hence we will just dismiss everything that you're saying. What would you say to that? Look, my perspective is um, basically that wind and solar can play an important role on an energy system, uh, topping it up, for example. Um, but look, the, the data is out there and I would encourage people to be open-minded and to have a debate. Um, about this. Um, I'm proud of the work we've done and we make a point of going out to communities and talking to people. Over the last 18 months, we visited 62 towns uh, across Australia, including in the western and northern districts of Victoria. And look, I can, you know, I, I accept that there are different opinions, but of who we've talked to, there is immense opposition and concern and anxiety about what is happening. And, you know, your listeners would know farmers or they would know of families of farmers who are having not only serious financial problems, but serious sort of mental health problems 
as you know, they've been fighting this for many years, and often they don't have a voice in in the cities who are making these decisions. So I would encourage people go out to these towns and talk to the the actual farmers on the ground to get a perspective of what they're going through. That was Daniel Wild, Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. A few different opinions coming through there on that uh, modelling by the IPA that says up to one third of all farmland in Australia would be covered in wind and solar farms by 2050 if coal, gas and oil was replaced by wind and solar. Bryce says, what a crock. You can crop under wind turbines and run stock under solar panels. Thanks for that one, Bryce. And this person says, Hi, Angus, Victorian state government put out a paper last year saying 70% of all Vic ag land would be needed for renewable energy sources. You can look it up in the offshore energy policy paper. I'll have to do that. Thanks for that text. Simon says, Using farmland for power generation does not prohibit farming. It's a small price to pay for a habitable climate. Maybe the IPA would prefer to use farming land to bury our heads in the sand. That's Simon's perspective. And Brett says, Hi Angus, let's just go nuclear and we solve land use and emissions issues and we have a reliable energy supply. Thanks for that text, Brett. Clyde also clarifying earlier, messaged about a seven-day rainfall event. I misunderstood what he said. He said... The only rain he'd had for the so-called seven-day rain event had fallen in the last 20 minutes last night. So 0.2 mils overall for the seven-day rain event and then 15 mils in the final 20 minutes in that thunderstorm last night. Clyde at Bright says, we thought the rain gods had forgotten us. Thank you for that text, Clyde, as well. Uh, 0467842722 is the text line. And you may have heard earlier on the radio too about... Uh, some Telstra phone outages in the northeast. An update here from Telstra General Manager Jenny Gray saying that our technicians are on site and working to restore power to the impacted Everton Exchange as quickly as possible. And she says some customers throughout the northeast of Victoria, including Omeo, Beechworth, Mount Beauty, Falls Creek, and surrounds, may be experiencing issues with fixed line services and or making res- and making or receiving phone calls but calls to triple zero are not impacted. That update there, and we'll, we'll keep you updated if that does change. 0467-842-722 is how you can get in touch with me on the text line. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Lab-grown meat substitute company Vow isn't planning on targeting traditional livestock markets, it says, after it cleared the first hurdle on the road to selling its lab-grown quail substitute in Australia. The food safety regulator, Fazans, has declared Val's cell-cultured quail product safe to eat, and that judgment is now open for public feedback. Val's senior government affairs lead, Nick Chilton, says the company also has an application in with Singapore's food regulator and plans to sell its products there next year. So at this stage, we're about halfway through the process. So far, Fazans's results as they concluded that it's safe, like we have, and the tests that they've done, which are now made public, show that we've met the criteria, we've met all the uh, limits and the thresholds that Fazans has set. Now we get to move into the public consultation part of the process. As part of the assessment, Fazans has also made labelling recommendations and they've suggested that cell cultured could be used on labelling. What do you make of that suggestion? 
Look, we were expecting that and uh, we, we're actually quite happy with that. We recognise that this is a completely new product and we want consumers to be aware of what it is. Uh, we want them to understand it's made in a different process. Uh, and we think cell culture is a, is a really fair middle ground, um, given there's a few terms floating out there. Given some of the concerns that have previously been out there for plant-based proteins particularly, in terms of using uh, meat nomenclature, we're very keen to be on the front foot of this and, and communicate to the, the farming community and the broader livestock and meat industry that we don't want to pursue the same uh, strategy. We want to make sure it's very clear for customers uh, exactly what this product is, noting that it'll be a few years before this is in retail shelves in Woolies or Coles or anything like that. Uh, we're a bit down the track for that, but I think important at this point in time to, to set the tone and, um, and we're, we're, we're really supportive of that. Are you after that sort of supermarket market or are you looking to, to move into different markets such as uh, high-end restaurants? Yeah, so our, our starting point is in is in fine dining. Uh, so we also have an application uh, with the Singaporean Food Agency. Uh, we expect pending regulatory approval later this year or early next year, we expect to be selling in Singapore uh, in uh, 2024. And that's in the fine dining context. And, and so you referred to your process there earlier. What is your process? The process and the product have been judged safe by Fizans. Uh, so what is your process, your production process? What we do is we take a, if it's from a mammal, it's usually a biopsy or from fish and uh, some fish and, and birds, usually from an egg. Um, we take the cells that repair meat, uh, connective tissue and fat cells. Then we differentiate them and try and identify those cells that uh, might give unique attributes to that species of animal uh, and those that will grow well in uh, in suspension. Um, so uh, kind of like your blood vessels, uh, your, your blood cells do, they grow in suspension. We take those, we feed them the nutrients that they would get in the uh, animal's body uh, if they're growing regularly. Uh, and we do that in a controlled, food-safe, sterile environment uh, in a big thing, big tank, essentially, called a bioreactor. Uh, and then we uh, we harvest those cells and then we turn them into delicious food products. So it's, it's about as simple as that. I mean, there's a lot of complex science beneath that, um, but at a basic level, that's that's kind of the process. For some people, this development with Fazans is really exciting. For others, uh, it's a little bit daunting. Is cultured meat the future of food or do you think that's making too much of it? We, we recognise as a, a thing for uh, a lot of people, and I'm, look, I come from the country, I'm a meat eater. Most of us are meat eaters here, and that probably differentiates us from every other cultured meat company out there that I'm aware of. Uh, and so we're kind of really keen to articulate that we have a slightly, a very different vision from um, the kind of cultured meat sector more broadly. So a lot of those other companies, they're perspective is that it's replacing animal agriculture, that it's looking at chicken and beef and pork, the, the, the animals we already consume and love. Our view is that that doesn't make a lot of sense. We we love eating the meat that we produce in Australia and New Zealand. We think it's delicious, it's high quality, it's sustainable, and we want to keep doing that. We have no intention to replace animal agriculture or to compete against it, which is why we've been using this technology to create new meats or meats that are harder for most people to get. So we're trying to diversify the options available for meat eaters. In terms of the future of food, we see this as a, an additional protein source uh, building alongside the sustainable farming we have. In terms of global demand for protein, we see this is another way to kind of meet that global demand for protein in a responsible way, um, the same as sustainable uh, farming does, traditional farming in Australia does. The wider industry is taking heart from the food regulator's initial assessment, saying it paves the way for the market to grow. Well, it's very exciting, not least because it's the first of its kind in Australia. 
This is Simon Eason, the executive director of the think tank Food Frontier. He says the export market for the potentially multi-billion-dollar industry is there for the taking. But regulatory approvals aside, are people willing to buy and eat cultured meat? We've done our own research in a number of markets in Asia, six six dominant markets in particular across Asia. And the difficulty is, you're asking the public questions where they have no valid experience. You know, with the products not out there on the shelves or out there to try, it's very difficult for them to really get their head around what this is. So, I think what what the the future really is is hoped for is that these technologies become normalised as part of the way we produce food. I don't think that we we need to be in a position where we're trying to sell people on technology as food. I think that's detrimental and I think there will always be some concerns or resistance. It's really about when are we going to get to a point where this is just normalised as another way in which food is produced. That was Simon Eason, the director of Think Tank Food Frontier, ending that report from Fiona Broom. Let's go to the text line now because quite a few texts coming through, particularly on that earlier discussion about how much farmland would be taken up by wind and solar if it was to replace all energy generation from coal, gas and oil. Uh, reference earlier to that state uh, Victorian state government offshore energy policy paper that does say that 70% of Vic uh, land would be needed for renewable energy sources. You can look that up. It's a pretty easy uh, Google search. Uh, This person says all houses need to be responsible for their own power generation through rooftop solar. Then we don't need transmission because the power is generated on site. Uh, Another person, Tom at Willatook, says uh, neighbours, carpetbaggers, politicians, councils impose these projects on their immediate neighbours. We have spent thousands of dollars just on a planning panel. I think uh, to oppose one of these projects by the sound of it, slowed them down, but still no decision. Thanks for that text, Tom. This person says, G'day, Gus. Why are farmers always portrayed as the bad guys? Without us, the population won't live long. Jen, also in support of nuclear. We had another text earlier saying nuclear is the way of the future. Jen says, we need to go nuclear. Go see China. If we don't use our uranium and regulate it, the Chinese will come here and take it. Nuclear is the only way to supply the world, and it's greener than people understand. Andrew Lang says the use of the use of biomass from agriculture and forestry, as well as organic waste from urban centres, is the largest single source of energy, including power and transport fuels, in countries like Sweden and Finland. It's ignored here, and all that material goes to waste, which Andrew says is pretty dumb. 0467842722 is the text line. But 29 to 1 now, so let's head to news headlines with Angus McIntosh. G'day, mate. It headlines today. The State Emergency Service says crews are still cleaning up after thunderstorms and strong winds lashed parts of the state yesterday. The SES received more than 300 requests for assistance with most of the calls related to tree downings and building damage with no injuries. State Duty Officer Shane McBride says the most affected areas were Wodonga, Wangaratta, Pakenham, Colac and South Barwon. New South Wales Police are appealing for information after a 15-year-old boy was approached by a man at a bus stop in an Albury suburb. 
Police say the boy was waiting to catch a bus on Elizabeth Mitchell Drive, Thurguna, at about 11.40 in the morning yesterday when a male driver in a white SUV reportedly stopped and offered the boy a lift. Police say they would like to speak with the man who is described as being of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander appearance in his early 30s with a thin build, dark brown eyes and thick black moustache. The state government says Victorians have been left worse off following the Commonwealth's mid-year budget update. The mid-year economic and fiscal outlook shows the federal government is managing the economy responsibly, slashing the deficit to just over $1 billion, despite higher-than-expected inflation. However, State Treasurer Tim Pallas has lashed out at the Feds, saying the $100 million slated for Victorian infrastructure is not enough, given the state's population. The criticism comes just days after the state government confirmed it had struck a major deal worth $3.6 billion to build a 16-kilometre portion of the suburban rail loop. And that's headlines. Thank you. Thanks, Angus. Angus McIntosh there with news headlines. Let's go to the Bureau now and see what's happening weather-wise. Joanna Hughes is on the line. Good afternoon, Joanna. G'day, Angus. How are you going today? Well, to be honest, Joanna, I've spent the first few days of the week in Mildura, so I was pretty hot, but uh, today, quite a different story. Yeah, that's right. It has cooled down quite a bit, but uh, it's... uh Weather made a bit of a, a show of it um, on, the, on its way to cooling down. We did have um, yeah, quite a, a lot of thunderstorms right across the state yesterday and um, a bit of damage re- reported from some of those thunderstorms as well with um, some of the, the top gusts recorded yesterday. Obviously, it's always hard with thunderstorms. If they go right over an observation site, then you, then you get to know what the gusts were and if they skirt around the side, you, you're never quite sure, but... Um, some of the top figures from yesterday and overnight it was 106 kilometre per hour gust recorded at Yarrawonga yesterday afternoon. Um, in the early hours of this morning, um, we also had 106 kilometres per hour over Mount Hotham, um, sort of in the in the wake of some thunderstorm activity. as winds continuing over the ranges, quite windy over over there overnight. Um, and Wangaratta copped a 81 kilometre per hour gust um, about five o'clock yesterday. Aubrey and Wodonga, there was um, quite significant. Thunderstorm activity through the area there in um, in the evening yesterday, 78 kilometre per hour gust there, and uh, for East Sale as well, 78 kilometre per hour gust um, in the evening yesterday as well. So that's just a, a couple off the off the top of the list, but um, yeah, quite um, significant activity across the state yesterday, and thankfully it is all calming down in terms of uh, thunderstorms and and everything today. So um, looking at the satellite picture at the moment, we've got uh, just cloudy conditions for most parts of the state. A um, couple of sunnier spots here and there, but by and large, a cool and, and cloudy day across the state and pretty settled. We've got the chance of uh, some potential light shower activity about exposed coasts and that sort of thing this afternoon, um, but otherwise uh, a much quieter and cooler day today. Um, and as we head into uh, the next couple of days, it's remaining pretty settled tomorrow. Um, same deal, slight chance of... Um, some showers sort of on and south of the ranges, particularly through um, through the southwest um, and parts of East Gippsland, um, as that uh, we've got this sort of ridge pushing pushing in, so calming things down, but maintaining that southwesterly flow. So a little bit of shower activity around the coasts, and then as we head into Saturday, a very similar story to, to Friday, sort of a bit of cloud and, and slight chance of some showers on and south of the ranges, but otherwise pretty pretty clear. And Sunday is uh, is looking pretty dry right across the state um, and a bit sunnier as well as those winds start to uh, tend a little bit more northerly um, as that high moves its way across 
um, on on Sunday. And as we head into Monday, those those winds turn northerly with a, a bit more bit more gusto, and so that's when we have the warmer temperatures um, and higher fire dangers returning. So that's that's on Monday. So looking at some of those temperatures um, for Monday, they're kind of gradually creeping up over the course of the weekend. Um, but when we get to, to Monday, that's when we're getting back up to 40 degrees for, for Mildura, 38 for Swan Hill, and sort of around the um, the mid to high 30s sort of uh, across the, the northern country and, and through the Wimmera. Um, and then south of the ranges, most places looking around 30 degrees as well. So that's the that's the peak of the days in terms of um, any hazards. So keep an eye out on the on the forecast as they develop, as they develop and any advice from the uh, relevant fire authorities as we as we approach Monday. Thankfully, um, it's not going to be a, a long a long lived um, high temperature sort of situation. Um, we do have a uh, low pressure system and, and trough that's set to cross the state sort of late Monday and into Tuesday. So. Um, Mildura uh, dropping a good 10 degrees between Monday and Tuesday, so back down to 30 or so um, north of the ranges and then south of the ranges um, in the sort of uh, the mid to low 20s on on Tuesday. So a bit of relief after that. Just the one the one sort of peak day of heat, um, and as that system moves across, there is a potential for some shower activity, um, but nothing too significant in terms of rainfall totals associated with that. Um, that system as it moves across. So remaining dry up in the northwest um, and sort of on and south of the ranges, probably just a millimetre or two, um, a fairly dry change as that moves across. The chance of maybe a thunderstorm, but a bit too too early to say, seeing as that's, uh, that's next sort of Monday, Tuesday. Um, I haven't kind of got, the, got my eye on the money there yet. Um, but then as we head into Wednesday, that system moves off and we've got another ridge pushing in, so returning to um, pretty settled conditions. A couple of lingering showers, particularly around um, coastal parts of eastern Victoria and into East Gippsland. Um, and then as we head into, into Thursday, that's easing off even even more. So to sort of summarise, the, the stormy weather has uh, moved away from us for now. Uh, we've just got a couple of lingering showers over the next couple of days, looking very dry right across the state on Sunday. And then Monday is that, that hot day with the elevated fire dangers right across northern parts of the state to keep an eye on. Um, and then as we head into Tuesday, we've got that trough moving across, bringing a few showers around, and then the showers easing Wednesday and into Thursday next week. Okay, Joanna. So it's uh, for, for the entire outlook, apart from uh light showers and the chance of a thunderstorm, really no substantial rain expected? No substantial rain expected, no. It's just um, just the sort of light shower activity in, in southwesterlies. Um, so, yeah, as I say, mainly on and south of the ranges. It's uh, not getting anywhere um, north of the ranges really at all um, over the outlook period. And the, the, the stormy sort of, well, really, past week that we've had in a lot of areas of the state, has that, has that sort of played out? Essentially, as you were expecting, as as we were, the bureau was forecasting this time last week. Yeah, so um, we were sort of looking at the um, at the, the storm activity from a, a few days few days out and a, and a week out, sort of looking ahead. It's always a bit um, bit patchy in those those longer term forecast periods, but certainly in in the the few days leading up to it, um, yeah, it was particularly yesterday looking like um, the sort of, I mean. The, the perfect mixture of, of different conditions to have um, have some some thunderstorms kicking off and um, and causing some havoc. So um, 
I'm glad that that is that is now now passed um, and that it's looking quieter in in the outlook period. But certainly, some um, there's a fair few folks out there still without power today, um, with some trees down and that sort of thing, with those thunderstorms coming through. So, um, yeah, glad that that's all that's all on on its way elsewhere now. And I did see a comment from a farmer. I can't remember where he was, but he clearly was having persistent thunderstorms over the past week because trying to harvest his crops and I think he said something like uh, get a bit done each afternoon before the, the evening thunderstorms roll in so it, it seems like in some areas they really were quite uh, p- persistent. Yeah yeah I think it's um, you know we've we've had that big uh, sort of humid mass of air that's sort of been sitting over Victoria for a, for a little while but uh, it's all looking pretty dry now um, in terms of uh, we've got Nifty, nifty little satellite image that we've got access to that um, sort of shows that it's comparatively dry sort of right up through um, the sort of higher parts of the atmosphere as well now. So um, all that humidity that sort of was lingering around looks to have um, cleared off at least for the time being. And we won't even dare ask you for a Christmas Day forecast yet. Much too early for that, but I'm sure you'll be getting that, that question soon. I think that'd be a little bit cheeky, Angus. But um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure as soon as we get access to the model data that goes out that far, we always get a, a flurry of interest in that that uh, the big day. I'm sure you do. <laughs> Thanks for that, Joanna. <laughs> no worries, Angus. Have a good afternoon. You too, Joanna Hughes. There at the bureau, a bit of a drier outlook coming up after those persistent thunderstorm conditions we've had in a lot of areas. On the text line, more texts on that that earlier story. The IPA modelling that. Uh, one third of farmland could be covered in wind and solar by 2050. Susie in Gippsland says that segment on the transition to renewable energy and its impact on farmland failed to link it with the state and national government's push to mine country in Victoria for supposed critical minerals to build the stuff. There'll be nothing left of the environment that we rely on for ours and our being others' survival. How about a segment on the damage of the Wild West mentality of mining? and its lack of regulations and the impact on country Victorians, including recent changes to the Mining Act. Thanks for that text, Susie. That uh, We could have made that linkage, and we will uh, keep that in mind in our reporting. Rusty says, Angus, the massive waste of solar and wind turbine parts a few years down the track means it won't be worth it. Thanks for your text, Rusty. Chris at Bolgana says... Uh, if you want to see the impact of wind turbines, come to Bolgana and look at the amount of land being destroyed by every time it rains from the 62 turbines there. Thank, thanks for that text, Chris. I know you thought we hadn't read it out. We have got a lot of text today, so if I miss one, that's because I've just missed them in the scrolling up and down of the text screen. Dan at Albury says, on solar power, almost one in three houses in Australia have solar panels, so how is it so that my bills, my power bills, are increasing? If we increase that, will my bills go up even more? Uh, good point, Dan. Thanks for your text. JP says, regarding grazing under solar panels, when sheep or calves have depleted the grass, how do you replace that? If machinery is not going to fit under the panels, you have to maintain pastures. They don't last indefinitely. 0467 822 On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. South Australian researchers hope a new food sanitizer they're developing can help prevent food poisoning. They say their prototype can kill salmonella in seconds 
if used on foods like chicken and eggs during the manufacturing process. University of Adelaide researcher Dr Katarina Richter explains how this plasma-based product is created. So we developed an innovative sanitizer based on cold plasma technology. Now, plasma, is, um, if you think about that, is the fourth state of matter. So we have solid, liquid gas, and if you put more energy into a gas, then you get plasma. It is a very high energy state of ionized gas and reactive radicals. You can see this, for example, in lightning or in the aurora borealis. So um, it occurs in nature, and we found a way to actually reproduce this in the lab with a plasma generator. Now, we shoot basically this kind of plasma into water and spice up the water with this kind of ionized um, gas and, and the reactive radicals, and they are then entrapped in the water so that uh, we can make the water antibacterial. And then you can take this sanitizer that you've then created in the lab and what put it on onto foods through the manufacturing process? Exactly, yes. So we tested this, um, this water in the lab against different foodborne pathogens such as Salmonella, Campylobacter and Listeria. So these are the main foodborne pathogens that actually cause um, the biggest problems in Australia. Um, pathogen outbreaks cost around $600 million every year and they result in over 4 million cases of food poisoning. So obviously um, there are lots of sanitization processes in place in industry uh, to keep our food safe. But sometimes bacteria can adapt and can become resistant to these kind of sanitizers. And this is where um, we have the problem. So this is when outbreaks can happen, um, causing illnesses in people. We can use our uh, plasma-activated water as a sanitizer um, in the same way standard industrial sanitizers are used. So, for example, we can use it as a, as a dip or as a spray for different food products um, to kill bacteria within a couple of seconds. So what type of food products would this be able to be applied to? Because obviously there are some that are a higher risk of carrying these bugs than others. Yes. So if you think about salmonella, first thing that comes to my mind at least is chicken. Mm. So um, we actually tested this on chicken meat and also on eggs. And we found that our sanitizer can kill salmonella within 15 seconds of exposure uh, without changing the smell or the taste of the food. So um, our first target, therefore, is uh, the chicken industry and the egg industry. But we are trying to um, find collaborators and industry partners in other sectors as well to apply our new treatment for other food products. That can include any other meat products or plant-based foods as well, like, you know, the, the Beyond Burger <laughs> and uh, all the legumes or um, washed salads or melons and whatever you can think about. So it has a wide variety of applications. We just need to optimise it for the different uh, food items. And what sort of testing has gone into ensuring that this is safe for uh, consumption once foods have been treated with this sanitizer? Is it safe? Um, do you know it's safe for people to consume? Yes. So uh, we did testing in the lab. On the one side, we tested the exposure of human cells to our sanitizer, and those cells remained viable. There was no safety concern whatsoever. 
And when we used the sanitizer on different food products, the smell or the taste also didn't change of the food, meaning that um, our sanitizer is actually very safe to use. We also identified that once we actually treated food with our sanitizer, because our sanitizer is based on radicals, those radicals interact with any kind of bacteria on food immediately. And therefore, they are, the, the radicals are consumed, leaving behind only pure water. And that means the sanitizer doesn't produce any kind of chemical waste or any kind of waste products that are bad for the, for the environment, making it a very environmentally safe and environmentally friendly solution to foodborne pathogens. That was Dr. Katarina Richter speaking with Selena Green. Dr. Richter is a future-making fellow from the University of Adelaide's Institute for Photonics and Advanced Sensing. On the text line, someone signing off as Mally Farmer says, uh, the Western Mining Corporation at at its Olympic dam site quoted in their inductions that 15% of the mine's output was uranium and that they used 10% of SA power on that site. Mally Farmer says, I think that would be a good starting point for using nuclear power there. Uh, Will says, G'day Angus, maybe it's better to destroy an area five times the size of Tasmania and cover it with wind and solar. That's really looking out for the environment. Oh, and by the way, then put a spider web of transmission lines in to link it all up. Uh, And then, thanks for that text, Will. A long one, I can't quite fit it all in, but... Thank you for contributing. John at Boundary Bend says regarding renewables, I have a farm and I want a company to put a solar farm on it. I can't find anyone interested. I can still run sheep and get extra income. Thanks for that, John. So a few different perspectives there around, uh, well, first up solar and wind and then also whether solar is compatible with livestock farming. Uh, Anthony at Coleraine, going back to our story about Val, the company getting those approvals to sell lab-grown quail substitute. Uh, they did reference fine dining. Anthony says, Angus, how do they put fake meat and fine dining into the same conversation? Thanks for your text, Anthony. Barry at Kyabram with the rainfall and weather update. One and three quarters mils, plenty of thunder and lightning to go with it. Thanks, Barry. 0467842722, the text line. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Let's talk prawns now because for Gippsland Lakes locals, nothing draws a crowd like a fresh haul of prawns. This week, the first catch of the season was on offer at the Lakes Entrance Fisherman's Co-op, coming in a couple of months ahead of schedule. Co-op General Manager Anthony Woodland told Fiona Broom the crustacean's early appearance has delighted the community. We got a surprise this morning that we had one of our local prawn fishermen uh, dropped off 100 kilos for us, so 100 kilos of local prawns, which is very rare this time of year. So normally they come on, well last year was uh, late February, so um, we were very excited with that, and I'm sure the, yeah, all the locals will be as well, because that's their normal go-to. How come they're so early this year? From what I was told, and I'll, I'll go by the, the local prawn fishermen, and it all comes down to the... You know, the extreme weather we've had with all this rain has actually pushed the prawns out into the ocean. So one of the, the well-known prawn fishermen has actually gone out um, and took advantage of that and has come back with our first catch for the year, So, uh, well, this season. So it's very, very exciting for us. And so where do they begin life? 
So they'll begin in the inlets, um, all the inlets around, obviously, you know, with the, in Gippsland. They'll start off in, in the inlets, um, they'll get to a certain size, and then they'll, they'll head out, head out into, the, into the ocean. And um, that's where you see, if you're heading down the 90-mile beach and you see a lot of it, the prawn fishermen were getting nice and close to the banks, to the shores, and that's, that's who they are. They'll be up there trying to catch, um, catch prawns, local prawns. So I was just in the shop earlier and someone came in. She said she'd seen online that the prawns had come in and she'd rushed in to get a couple yeah. of kilos. Are the, are the local prawns quite special to the community here? Oh, absolutely, yeah. They're, they're always asking um, when they come in the shop, when are they on, when are they coming on. So we've made sure that we advertised early to it for our local, our local residents and they're, they're flying out the doors. They are, uh, they are a very popular treat for the locals, so... Uh, the sooner they get on, the better for them. So getting on just before Christmas um, is going to be great. Can they expect them to continue over the next few months or will they sort of go quiet again until February? Uh, look, we'd be hoping that now that they're out um, outside that they'll be, they'll be just starting to, you know, they'll, they'll stay out there now. You know, the, the season may not go as long, but the timing couldn't be better for us um, leading into Christmas. So they'll get... They're, they're not uh, of a huge size at the moment, but you know it, it doesn't take it long for them to grow to, you know, to a large size or a normal normal size. So, and so, do the local fisheries and, and the co-op? Do you supply uh, just locally, or do you provide into Melbourne and interstate? Um, we, we normally provide locally. However, um, we have in the past, over the last twelve months, we've actually been blast freezing our local prawns if we get excess amounts. And we've, um, those have been really successful for restaurants around Gippsland and also close to New South Wales, border into Pambula and Marimbula. Some of the, the restaurants there um, have been um, buying quite a lot off us. So that's working really well and we think that um, we'll continue to do that once the prawns come on again. And we're standing in what will soon be the new fish and chips slash cafe centre for the co-op and the dredger, well, it was just behind us, but has quickly disappeared. Uh, is, is the local industry in good shape at the moment? How's fishing going in, in Lakes Entrance? Yeah, look, um, if, it was really concerning over October. Um, we, had, we had all things going against us. We had really poor weather. Um, the fishing was poor. But as soon as it come to, to um, November... You know, the water's um, heated up and the fishing's um, this first couple of weeks of December's just been incredible. So um, we were biting our nails and worrying how we we're going to be able to provide seafood for not just for the locals but all the, the restaurants and businesses that we supply around Gippsland. And thankfully, um, they've come at a really good time. So our fillers are extremely busy, cutting lots and lots of fish and, uh, and our boats... Our uh, boat owners and, and skippers are extremely happy, which also makes for things uh, a lot easier around here coming into Christmas for them as well. How big is the industry here at the moment? How many skippers do you still have locally? It sort of varies a little bit because we do have quite a lot of local boats, around 28 to 30, but we also have lots of visiting boats as well. So they can come from, you know, from South Australia, Tasmania, New South Wales, um, depending on the season and what they're wanting to catch. Um, so it is, it is quite busy. When the boats, boats are on this time of year, the market prices are also quite high um, for fish, so that gives them incentive to go out and, and catch more. So they're on a good thing at the moment. Obviously, leading into Christmas, um, restaurants are screaming out for fresh fish. Um, the markets are finding it hard to keep up, so the prices will, will stay high. Our fishermen will agree that they'll be quite a successful you know, next, next month or two.
That was Anthony Woodland, General Manager at the Lakes Entrance Fisherman's Co-op, speaking with Fiona Broom. On the text line, Peter Ballarat says, Angus, the IPA is not a credible research organisation and it has uh, direct links to the Liberal Party. They are not recognised as a serious investigative or research institution. And Pete saying the Country Hour should clearly disclose who the IPA is. Thanks for that text, Pete. Uh, They do certainly have links to the Liberal Party and you can dig further into the research. We only touched briefly on it on the Country Hour, but... uh, Nonetheless, the broader point about more wind and solar, if coal, gas and oil are entirely replaced, uh, I suppose it is an obvious one. Uh, Lorraine says, I think I'll be wary about eating out in the future. I'll be wondering if sanitizer has been put onto any of my food. Going back to our earlier story about that uh, sanitization product designed to eradicate issues like salmonella. Robert Mulker says, thunder and lightning, just half a mil of rain. Thanks for that text, Rod. Off to markets now, starting today at Bensdale Cattle with Brendan Fletcher. G'day. Numbers increased to 610. That's 210 more with the usual buyers operating in a cheaper market. Quality was in short supply with cows and secondary lots representing the bulk of the sale. A handful of vealers were passed in. Ground steers and heifers eased 10 to 15 cents. Cows lost between 10 and 30 cents with processors loading cows for an estimated 314 to 391 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls improved slightly. The villas sold from 180 to 270, yearling heifers suited to the trade 210 to 230, ground steers 190 to 240, with the better end going to feedlot, manufacturing steers 180 to 202, most light and medium weight cows 132 to 174, heavyweights 164 to 210, heavy bulls 168 to 236. This is Brandon Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks, Brandon. Wagga lambs now with Leandax. Good afternoon. A remarkable turnout of 50,000 lambs and 26,800 sheep found a smaller group of buyers today. Notably, two major export companies refrained from purchasing heavy lambs, causing a drop in prices of $20 to $40. Prices fluctuated between $174 to $228, averaging $635 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Despite this, major domestic buyers stabilised the trade lamb prices with most holding steady or slightly lower. Lambs weighing 22 to 24 kilo fetched from 148 to 171. Restockers were active in the market, particularly for well-bred lambs, which were sold within a range of 66 to 111. This morning witnessed a substantial volume of sheep transactions, resulting in a decline in prices by 10 to $30, with numerous processing plants on the verge of closure for the Christmas break. Heavy mutton was priced between $35 and 48, while trade and light sheep fetched 16 to 40 I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Wagga, not quite so buoyant as it was last week. Quickly on the text line, this person says, after a week of overcast calm conditions, no solar power, no wind, no coal or gas power generation, we'll have to have nuclear power. Lake Burley Griffin could make a good nuclear power plant cooling pond. And Jeff says, we are worrying about the land taken up by renewable energy plants. What about the productive land disappearing to housing? You can't graze stock under a concrete slab. Thank you for all of your texts today. Remember the website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. Also ABC Rural on Facebook.